Good evening to all, and thank you so much for coming out. My name's Elspeth Proben, and it's my immense pleasure to be facilitating this conversation. Before you, you have the very well-known Tara, whose book has caused an absolute eruption of many, many forces, most of them good, um, and certainly about issues that need to be continually spoken and raised. Tara is, as you know, the author of many successful best-selling uh, fictional books, and this is her first uh, non-fictional book. And Tara came to us at the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies last year to start her PhD, or what's called a Doctorate of Social Sciences, with us um, part-time, and I said to her this afternoon, I'm waiting till all this media stuff calms down so you can come back and <laughs> come back to class. And it's my immense pleasure and also thanks to Paul Pradet for being the main conversationalist. Paul, again, has a long career before he came to academe. He worked for several decades, but only, that sounds like it could be five or six, but really three, um, in advertising. And um, when Meredith Hall suggested this idea, I thought, what a great idea to have the ad man, <laughs> which isn't Paul, really, uh, with um, Tara. Paul's worked and trained at um, J. Walter Thompson, came over to Australia, had his own advertising agency, and continues to work in that part of the world, uh, which um, I always find deeply fascinating. I say that if I hadn't been a good girl when I was 16, I would have gone into advertising rather than for some reason thinking, oh, what a great idea, let's be a professor. And uh, Paul, several years ago, came in to give a guest lecture in one of the courses I teach on uh, consuming culture. And not directly, but only indicating his immense strength, went off and did a BA and honours and now is enrolled in our department doing a PhD on creative masculinity within multinational ad agencies. So Shanghai, New Delhi and, and uh, Sydney. So a kind of brilliant pairing of these two extraordinary people. So Paul, do you want to start off? Um, I'm delighted to be able to do this. This is going to be a question of the amateur and the professional here, so we'll see how the amateur goes. One of the things, Tara, I was really impressed with, with your book and with the information that the book gave through is, without hesitation, you would obviously have a very full CV. Um, I think it would be fa safe to say that you're not a person that allows the grass to grow under your feet. Um, and clearly you conduct a lot of research and enjoy research in what you do. Um, but I was interested in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning. Um, there was a, an article under the arts section that said, uh, could a Wonder Woman movie finally be happening? And uh, the Hollywood insider, uh, Nellie Fink, who's a, a writer on film, um, claims that she has inside knowledge that there's going to be a Wonder Woman movie and one of the topics in your book is about the roles that females play, the number of roles or lack of them. And uh, so I thought I'd start with a, a silly question, is that uh, they have said that they don't know who's going to play Wonder Woman yet. So my first question is, have you received, have you received a, a phone call from your agent yet? 
Well, those of you with very sharp eyes in the crowd will know that I am wearing the secret symbol of Wonder Woman on my ears right now. I am actually wearing Wonder Woman earrings. <laughs> given to me by the wonderful Kelly Fagan at the launch of The Fictional Woman, and they've been my good luck charm through the tour, so I think I'm legally not allowed to say anything more than that, but, uh, but uh, yes, Maybe I am wearing... <laughs> Wonder Woman is, is actually, an, I mean, it's an interesting character to discuss and to start with because there's a wonderful documentary called Wonder Women. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Uh, talking about Wonder Woman and her, um, her beginnings in the 1940s and how she has really disappeared over the last 40 years since the television show that was quite popular. And she fits into some of the arguments later in my book um, in a chapter called The Archetypal Woman where I discuss the fact that these you know, great, powerful, interesting female characters very rarely get the same Hollywood backing and financial backing that their male colleagues do. So how many Spider-Man uh, reboots have we had, Batman reboots? Um, how many, you know, we've got Captain America, we've got all of these figures who are very familiar to us. Um, Superman, again, another incarnation, and still no Wonder Woman film. Incredible. Um, there's only been one female sort of superhero character that I'm aware of that has made it to the big screen in a big way, which was, of course, Catwoman. And that didn't work out so well, uh, the Halle Berry movie. What's interesting about that is it was the first time Catwoman had appeared uh, when she wasn't secondary to a male character because she was originally created by Bob Kane as a, uh, a love interest for Batman. So she's, although we think of Catwoman as quite a progressive character, perhaps even a feminist character, um, in reality she was credited as a love interest to make Batman a little bit less, um, a little bit less mm, sterile, uh, to give him something to do, <laughs> perhaps literally, um, <laughs> to give him something to do. Um, and so she's never actually appeared, apart from that film, um, on her own in a screen adaptation, which is very interesting. Um, and, of course, in that one screen adaptation, which bombed terribly, uh, Batman didn't appear, apparently unable to play second fiddle to her even once. Uh, so th there is something to be said, I think, about uh, female superheroes and the lack of... Not the lack of their existence. There's actually a lot of really fabulous female superheroes that have been written and have been in the comic books, but they don't tend to get uh, strong Hollywood backing, essentially. Um. One of the things that was really interesting um, is the way in which your book, and we're here to celebrate, if you like, this book, um, and we learned, or you told me just before we reached in here, that uh, this book now tops the non-fiction best-selling list, um, which is fantastic news. Um, I believe you're saying it's gone into its third printing already? Yeah, it's, it's been reprinted a couple of times, which is wonderful and... Um yeah, I've just been quite amazed by the support for the book in such a short period of time. It's been out for less than a month. Could you just tell us a little bit about, I mean, you're, you're well known as a writer of crime fiction. Um, what is your impression of the overall reception that you've received now as a non-fiction writer as well as crime fiction? Well, I certainly didn't um, arrive at the writing of this book by accident. It didn't come out of nowhere. I, I have found that over the last several years... Um, I've been compelled to write more non-fiction uh, opinion pieces and blogging, uh, pieces for news review, pieces on issues of social justice um, and, and other uh, important, I think, important topics. And 
I have noticed the reception to those pieces, that they have been well received, and that it felt to me a little bit like after writing nine fiction books, many of which I very heavily researched, that maybe it was time to strip away the veneer of fiction and approach these topics in a really direct manner. So whilst as a crime writer, it, it seems like a very big leap to write a book like The Fictional Woman, in fact, as a crime writer, you are um, tackling a genre where you can explore issues of social justice in a kind of, if you say, in a you know, the safe space of it being entertainment. Um, but nonetheless, you're, you're tackling very important social issues, contemporary social issues. So I always did quite a bit of research for my crime novels and spent a lot of time with police officers, investigators, private investigators um, at crime scenes in morgues and speaking to survivors of crime and their families. And that perhaps over time that added to the sense that this was a book I needed more urgently to write, that it was a transition that I needed to make. Combining that with the opinion pieces I began writing, particularly in my work with UNICEF as the National Ambassador for Child Survival, um, speaking on maternity issues and, and issues of child survival and child rights, I found that this was kind of, um, that perhaps all along I had been wanting to write very directly about these issues and I felt the time was now, 10th book, um, that this would be uh, an area for me to delve into head on. And the response has been enormous and quite a bit more um, intense, particularly emotionally intense, than I had originally anticipated. Uh, the Fictional Woman is a book which is essentially an argument about the fact that stories matter, that storytelling has always mattered in human history. The stories we tell matter, and so too do the storytellers. They, they choose what stories are told and in what manner. In, they shape, in a way, our culture and our cultural perspectives as individuals and as a society. So it's a book about the fictions around all of us, but particularly it focuses on women and girls, the common fictions and archetypes. Um, but when I was writing this uh, story about fictions, I realized that I couldn't really talk about the experience of women and girls and the way they're perceived, the way they're shown, without talking about the common experiences of women and girls. And I couldn't talk about that common experience without delving into very serious issues like sexual violence, like domestic violence, like miscarriage, like uh, equal pay, uh, parliamentary representation. So the book kind of got bigger, and in a way, I also felt that I couldn't, in good faith, talk about these very serious issues without also putting my hand up and saying, you know, I'm one of the statistics as well, and to show solidarity with other people who've had these experiences. And that was where the memoir component of the book was born. It's not a, um, an autobiography. There's a small section, maybe 10% of it is memoir. But to me, in the writing of the book, it became very clear that that memoir component was absolutely essential. Um, and that's really how this, the fictional woman came to be the book that it is, the, the mix of memoir and social comment, of data and discussion of archetypes. And I guess a kind of, um, a, I think also an argument about hope and optimism, the fact that we can um, all participate in changing these common fictions and stories, that it is within our power to do so. What? Sorry. Can I uh, just jump in there? Um, because I did want to ask you about the, the writing per se. I mean, we're in a, an audience that's at a university, and certainly I'm sure lots of academic writers there. Um, and for many of us, or for myself at least, um, I would 
you know, the idea of being able to write fiction would be brilliant, let alone the, you know, the drudgery of academic writing. But one of the things that struck me is that, of course, your book is so true to a long tenant within feminism that the personal is political. And I just wonder if you could talk to us a bit about what happens when the personal's political explodes in the public eye as it has in the last month. Well, I think that is a really interesting um, aspect of this to talk about because I certainly underestimated the impact of the memoir components of the book. I really did. I was very focused on the uh, sort of logical arguments. And in fact, even just having the argument in the public space that we need to have this argument, <laughs> uh, the fact that it's certainly not a question within the university space, but within the larger public discussion, the moment the word gender is mentioned or you talk specifically about issues pertaining to one section of the population, women and girls, you immediately do have a, a tendency to, well, you find that you get pushback. So I was quite focused on that, and I think I underestimated the impact of uh, my putting my hand up, as I said before, and showing uh, that I had, you know, that I was one of the statistics as well. Um, I think it is really important from time to time to put a face to data. I'm a big fan of data. <laughs> you know, there's nearly 20 pages of um, endnotes in this book, and it's not an academic book. Um, so, you know, I, I do want to make sure my arguments are evidence-based and that there is an opportunity for readers to find out more. But it is very easy to forget that every statistic represents a person, a real person, a real person's life, a life lived, an experience um, that has been survived or an experience that has impacted someone. And perhaps this is the power of that memoir component, which I had underestimated. And certainly during the last, I guess it'd be uh, three weeks or so, three and a half weeks since the book has been published, I've been on tour meeting uh, huge numbers of people, um, men and boys, girls and women, connecting with the book, connecting with the work and the stories. And as, a, as now writing a book like The Fictional Woman, it's a very different experience than it was as a crime writer. There are a lot of people sharing their stories with me, feeling more um, open about aspects of their lives that had, I think, uh, weighed heavily on them. Um, I've had, you know, for instance, there was a woman at a signing in Melbourne who hadn't been out for 13 years, who came to the signing just to, to thank me for what I'd said on Q&A and for writing the book that I did. The, the, the fact that that has impacted her in a very direct way, one person, is a really powerful thing to see as the author of that work. I can't claim to be responsible for that change in her life, but the fact that that has triggered something or prompted something in her is incredibly powerful and not really something I'm able to fully process, certainly as an individual. Um, so I've seen a lot of these types of responses um, from people who have had a variety of you know, very difficult experiences and who... Um, you know, just want to come in and just shake your hand and say thank you. And that is a very, it feels like a huge responsibility um, to be at the receiving end of that, but it's also an incredible honor, an incredible honor, um, which I could, you know, feel like I can never really live up to. It's almost impossible to live up to. But I think it's easy to forget sometimes the impact that uh, personal stories can have. And having seen what I've seen in the last three weeks, and you know, there are many stories I could tell you that would just um, 
you know, can't even really articulate how moving they are. The fact that uh, I'm seeing that on the ground, face to face with people, means that no one will ever be able to use any argument to try to tell me that that is not important, because I have seen it on the ground. And if we can do that for one another in some way, if we can more adequately support one another by having these conversations more openly, which is one of the arguments I, I make in the book, um, if we can break through some toxic silences, if we can talk about the ways we can adequately support one another, if we can give people the tools in the community to be able to adequately, more adequately support one another, we're doing something really positive. So that is, I guess, the aspect of this book which I had uh, really underestimated and probably um, you know, not given as much thought. Uh, it was perhaps good that I didn't uh, anticipate it because um, it would have been daunting, perhaps. But the fact that that is what is happening uh, as a result of this book is a huge honor and um, I'm just really grateful that it's having a positive impact on individuals. Um, in the book, you, in the first sort of section of the book, which is a lot of autobiographical and experiential things that have happened to you, uh, one of the things which, of course, you, you are now well known for is that um, you felt it necessary to validate your authenticity as an author by taking a polygraph test, a lie test, uh, which is now well known as part of your, your Well, technically it was a dare. Well, okay, but do, do you feel that the, um, the, your personal experiences revealed in the first part of this book, in a sense, validated your credibility as a non-fiction author? Have you, do you feel that the need, again, to validate your authority here? I don't think I really viewed it that way. I suppose I wanted to take something that was on the public record, in this case, uh, an article in the Australian newspaper in 2002, and show that as just one personal example that illustrates the way in which fictions can constrain people and the way we can use something, in this case, a scientific tool, um, the polygraph, um, forensic psychophysiology, can be used to break through a significant fiction. The, um, I tie it in again at the end of the book in relation to the particular journalist who dared me to take that test, who was um, formerly known as Emma Tom, now Dr. Emma Jane, who's at UNSW. And I mention her because she gave me a great gift. She knew that I had, was the author of my own work. She found the rumors really frustrating. And she thought, this is a really fun way that we can debunk it with an um, a independently verified scientific test to essentially make me the first scientifically proven author in the world, as far as I know. This is a strange and dubious honor, but nonetheless an honor. So she was, it was also about one woman helping another, one person helping another person break through a significant fiction. And that's why I included that at the beginning of the book, to actually show that this my experiences, you know, they're not coming out of a vacuum. There is a long-standing history of the particular thinking that's necessary to make so many people believe a model can't write a book. It takes a, a sort of a collective um, buying into a particular stereotype. And that was experienced by me um, over a lot of time and still continues today for many other people who don't have the platform that I have. So I think it was important to both identify that these stereotypes are there and actually impact real people. Um, but it was quite fun to debunk that one. And it was, um, you know, a great mind that helped me to do it. And I think in a way that was kind of entertaining and, and yes, peculiar. My, 
Sorry, just to follow up, the, the, the key thought that I wanted to ask you, though, is the, the revelation of your personal experiences, both uh, happy and unhappy, and, and uh, as, as you say, being a member of the, or, or one of the statistics. Do you feel that that sort of revelation, though, has, um, in a sense, laid the foundation for the, for the, if you like, the power of this non-fiction work? Um, perhaps unexpectedly so, or perhaps I hadn't really considered that from the perspective of whether my story was valid, because I think everybody's story is valid, but rather um, I felt it, there was a matter of authenticity that was important. Uh, one of my arguments in the book is that, as I said, there are toxic silences, and they need to be broken through in order to have a real day-to-day um, -day difference in a lot of individual people's lives. So if I was going to be an advocate in these areas, I couldn't in good faith do that whilst participating in the silence that I was trying to debunk. It, it, was, it was something logically that I had to do. Now, I don't... Uh, I would never make the argument that everyone needs to tell their story, certainly not in this very public way, which I can say has not been a walk in the park. However, as an advocate for women and girls and on these subjects, it simply was something that I, I had to, to do to be in all good faith continuing to talk in this area. It was a matter of authenticity and it was, um, you know, really um, I was needing to live my own argument. I needed to be able to say, uh, this, this does make a difference and then be able to participate in that. And that wasn't the case for me five years ago, perhaps. But now, because I am in this area, it felt like the right time. And for me, this book was the way to, to do that. But certainly, I did underestimate the, the power of it. You know, a couple of paragraphs here and there in a long book. The fact that that would have received so much attention um, still surprises me now. Um, sort of continuing on from um, Emma Tom, now um, Emma Jane. Um, <coughs> but also going back to a, a more feminist line. One of the um, quotes I love in this book is from uh, Marina Warner, and um, you cite her. When I was young, I did actually model and was much photographed by famous photographers, but I was always a bookworm. One of the achievements of our generation of feminists was to emancipate women from the division between being interested in clothes and appearance and being serious and ambitious. Now... Um, Thankfully, you are in a department um, of gender and cultural studies where clothes and seriousness go hand in hand. But certainly over the life, over the decades of um, being involved with feminism and gender studies, um, there has been a real sharp division between um, lipstick and not, looks and not. Um, so how has that um, affected some of the impact around um, that is this book? I haven't yet had a lot of um, really serious discussions about that apparent perceived dichotomy yet. I was expecting there might be more so far, but I haven't. However, I've found that we... I've managed to have a lot of very interesting conversations about the supposed mind-body dualism, um, that classic dualism that says that if you have a, a body that you are using that we're looking at, so a model, an athlete, a dancer, you cannot also be cultivating your mind. Um, and, of course, this is a perception that a lot of people have. We have it very unconsciously. 
um, and we'll see that with a lot of our very popular athletes, um, as well as uh, with models who we uh, see in the in the advertising um, in advertising and in that medium. My argument, though, when I talk about things like the axis of contempt and allure, which I've been talking about a lot, this 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 axis of contempt and allure, um, is that the mind-body dualism, when we attach it to something sexual or sexually arousing, when we attach it to the feminine in the sense of um, someone who is alluring, we have another component which is added. So you already have mind-body dualism. If we have a man who has his shirt off, who looks very attractive, we might not be thinking about his mind in that moment, but we are unlikely to feel hate and contempt for him for having his shirt off or for being attractive to us. However, when that figure is female, there's still a very large section of the population where there will be a certain amount of contempt and anger and moral outrage about her being alluring. There's a long history, as I mentioned in the book, of the female body simply by being seen um, that it is somehow corrupting or causing um, a provocation of some sort, simply by existing. And so I think that there is a very important discussion to be had, particularly in such a um, advertising-heavy culture that we have now. I'm sure you would agree with me, Paul, it is an advertising-heavy culture, and it's image-saturated. When the vast majority of visible women in our culture are found within that advertising-heavy medium, and you see in the data in the book that when they're outside of an advertising-heavy uh, medium, women's representation plummets. So if women are within that advertising-heavy medium, if they're chosen to be in that medium because they are conventionally attractive, which also means sexually attractive, and we have a cultural reason to feel contempt for them for that same reason, we can call them bimbos or whores or imagine that they're vacuous and they didn't earn their place there, then we have a real problem in my view because it does, I argue, set a blueprint for how all women can be treated, not only the women that appear in those ads. So I do think this issue of mind-body dualism and contempt and allure and how that intersects in a culture where women are so visible in advertising, and again, it's always that same group that's chosen, generally young, white um, women who are of a certain conventional type. Um, the fact that that is very overly represented, that particular type of woman, but she is also resented for it, I think causes a lot of problems, um, and that's one, just one of the issues that I explore in the fictional woman. Well, one of the, um, sorry, sorry one of the things, just to pick up on that, but one of the things that is interesting that you've just raised, which I agree with you, I mean, I th you, you used in the book actually a phrase which I really liked, advertising-soaked, an advertising-soaked culture, um, which I agree with. But one of the things that intrigues me is the way in which um, the body, female and male bodies, are treated in advertising. So, for example, the female body gets chopped up into bits. Um, for example, you get photographs of close-ups of lips or hair or breasts or whatever it happens to be. In fact, it was interesting that on the... Um, I, I picked up a copy of your first um, crime novel, Fetish, and there on the front cover is a photograph that says, photo of... and the credits said, photo of woman's legs by Matthew Dinkle. So, in other words, Matthew, the male photographer, gets credited with this anonymous pair of woman's legs. But advertising tends to do that, but it doesn't chop out men um, in some way. I wondered if you could maybe have a comment on that or a thought on that. 
Look, I don't, um, I'm probably not the expert to speak on um, looking at advertising more generally because you'd think probably from my background as a model that I would have more insight into this, but it's something I'm actually wanting to investigate further. Um, the fact that we do, we would talk about objectifying women. I think it is a term that's probably slightly overused, but there certainly are many instances in which we take body parts and we use them as, as objects to sell things. We do see that, the commodification, particularly of women's bodies, to sell everything from toothpaste to cars to, to cologne. And um, there is a section called The Beautiful Man where I discuss the real uh, marked difference between the ways in which women's bodies and uh, physical selves are represented as being sensual and men's physical selves are considered to be uh, the norm, unremarkable, uh, not uh, um, imbued with sensual attributes, which I think is very particular to our kind of Anglo-Saxon heteronormative uh, advertising space and cultural space. So I'm quite interested in this kind of uh, this difference um, for a bunch of reasons, but I do focus more in the book on the actual storytelling rather than the iconography. Maybe the next book will be more on the actual imagery and iconography because I feel that the um, archetypal woman um, comes through so frequently in our storytelling and the traditions of our storytelling, which go back literally centuries. Um, we were talking before about the Bechdel test. I don't know how many people in the room here are aware of the Bechdel test. There's a couple. So just to give you a, a very basic idea of women's representation in our mainstream cinema, which I argue is our most dominant storytelling. As a novelist, I'd love to believe it's novels. Um, it simply isn't. Um, you know, really well-backed, big-budget films are our most dominant storytelling today. I think it's hard to argue otherwise. And we look at something called the Bechdel test, which was popularized by Alison Bechdel. And to pass the Bechdel test, you need only have two female characters who speak to each other at any point in the film about anything other than a man. That's it. That's all it takes to pass the Bechdel test. They can discuss anything over that 90-minute or two-hour film, anything at all, apart from a man. The vast majority of films fail. The vast majority, including all of the Star Wars films, all of the Lord of the Rings films, all of the Indiana Jones films, all but one of the Harry Potter adaptations, written by J.K. Rowling. All of these films fail. And in fact, looking at the top grossing films of 2012, just as an example, to, to take this idea about storytelling and really look at women's representation, the vast majority of films in 2012 that were top grossing failed. In fact, it was 74% of them that failed. But what's really interesting to me is that out of the films, the top grossing films that passed in that year, the films that passed made much more money than the films that failed. So in other words, this is Hollywood habit, not great business acumen. So if you're looking at 2011, for instance, 89% of the protagonists in the top grossing films were men. 89%. And as I've said, vast majority of films, no two women ever talk to each other, right? You think about our perceptions of women's roles in society, and even that old cliche, all women hate each other. Well, they don't even talk to each other, do they? Not in our contemporary dominant storytelling. And if you look at why that might be, I have a couple of arguments. One is that there's the matter of remakes. If something is a classic, it has more weight, right? So we keep retelling Shakespeare. 
we keep retelling stories. Even they're doing a 44th Zorro film. This is from a radio play from 1914. We look at Robin Hood and the Merry Men. We look at all of these old stories, which are of course male-dominated because naturally at the time, women were not even allowed to be playwrights. They couldn't write a book without having a male name attached, a nom de plume, right? And if you look at that tendency to remake even fairy tales from the Middle Ages, like Snow White, there were two Snow White films that came out last year, huge budget, stories of witches, stories of virgins, and femme fatales and witches, you see that these archetypes that have been around for centuries are still very present in our culture. And also you see that the storytellers, not only the stories themselves, but the storytellers are one very small demographic. So we have a very diverse world. And yet, if you look, for instance, at the top grossing 250 films of 2012, 91% of the directors were men, 85% of the writers were men, 83% of the executive producers were men. 98% of the cinematographers were men. So if you think about stories and you take my argument that stories matter, that they do form the background texture to our understanding of the world through repetition. I'm not arguing any individual film is wrong or any particular director isn't doing wonderful work. But if we look overall at these patterns, we can see that they form our background idea of human nature, of our place in the world, and how the world operates. And it is my argument that that is why stories matter and, and the, story, the nature of the storytellers themselves matter. Um, so we need a more diverse series of stories being told. We mean, need more diverse storytellers. And I would argue at least some storytellers that are still alive. I'm just saying. It might be good. I mean, there are some very talented people out there. So perhaps instead of doing another Sherlock Holmes, who's literally been, do you know, he's had over a hundred remakes, another Batman, another Spider-Man, Zorro number 44, that we can reach out and find some other stories to tell that represent the more diverse world we live in. And to take it to something I think a little bit more urgent and immediate, we can look at our parliament. And these are our other storytellers, they're our lawmakers, but they're also the people who set the agenda for, um, for our country in so many ways, including what the narrative is, our politicians. And you look at our population, 50.2% of our Australian population is female, less than one-third of the parliamentarians, and 5% of the cabinet. Our cabinet is 100% white and 95% male. So if you weren't sure what our dominant demographic was, that's a pretty clear illustration. Like, li likewise with Hollywood, talking about the other types of storytelling. If you look at the um, Academy Awards and who the voters are, 94% of them are male, or sorry, 94% of them are white and 75% are male. So certain types of stories are gonna be more familiar to those people. Of course, they're gonna privilege a certain type of perspective. This is totally natural. The way to break through this is to work towards a more diverse perspective, more diverse voices, give other people a chance to get in on the public narrative to, to be rewarded with, a, you know, our, we can vote with our ticket stubs, we can vote literally at elections, we can actually see that the stories with the most merit, the people with the most merit, are not necessarily all from the same demographic. The world is much more diverse than that. Um, I think one of the, the real strengths of what you've done in this book is to bring together a whole lot of information like those statistics that you've just talked to, 
um, and gather things together and then ask a whole heap of questions. You raise a number of, you know, lot, lots of questions. Can I just ask that in the time that the book has been launched and you've been sort of on a number of these um, conversations and chat panels, what's been the reaction to, from men and boys and about some of these statistics that you've raised? Have you had a good response to that or...? I've had an incredible response. Yeah. I've, I've had responses from very conservative uh, male radio hosts who've said, you know, th thank you for this book. Um, thank you. I'm a, you know, I've got a daughter and I've been worried about this and haven't had a, a way into the conversation and they feel included, which is, which is wonderful. I've had um, high school aged, um, a lot of high school aged girls and also boys coming to me saying, you know, I identify as a feminist or I'm pro-feminist and I'm being bu bullied and beat up about it at school. Thank you for writing. I've got a chapter called The Feminist, which essentially gives you the intellectual ammunition to respond to those bullies and say, it's real simple. Here's a dictionary definition. Here's why it matters. Here's what it means. There's no controversy here. It's like taking, taking the, um, the unnecessary heat and anger out of the conversation with just rational discussion. So I've been really heartened by the reaction from a, a huge range of, of people in Australia already, men and boys and women and girls, because they can see immediately that this, this is about issues that affect the entire community at every level, at every age. It affects the entire community. And the book does focus most strongly on women and girls, and that's the intention of the book, which I flagged very early on. But I still can't talk about gender without talking about the negative way it impacts boys and men and fathers. Um, and there is a, you know, an, there are many issues there. And you know, I wasn't able to give as many chapters as, to those issues as I'd like to because that's not the focus of this book. But it's still, it's important for us to look at those things and look at gender um, and the constraints of it and how it influences the way our culture works and the real experiences people are having on the ground. And that affects the entire community. I wonder if I can just um, maybe raise or create a, a hypothesis for you to respond to because um, obviously in the book you raise issues of equality and therefore obviously of inequality. Um, and one of the things that really intrigues me is um, I've written a, a little bit, as, as some people know, about a concept of gender blindness, uh, which basically comes from research that I've conducted in businesses where men when the whole question of equality is raised, they say, well, the problem's been solved. It doesn't exist. Um, so well, why is that? Well, we have, a we have a company policy. Or look around the floor and you'll see that, you know, most of the people here are women. And they think that the problem is solved. So therefore, I've hypothesized that they're gender blind. Your book has actually stimulated a thought in me that one of the biggest problems we have is gender muteness from the, from the males. Because there are a number of people, and obviously you're uh, well known for this, who are spokespersons for the feminist side of things. One of the problems that seems to me is that we don't hear enough from men. Men are not putting these types of arguments together from that point of view. They're not representing statistics like this. They're, they're relatively mute, maybe because they don't want to erode the power base that they already have. But I wondered if you could just... What your thoughts I don't on think that I'm quite be. as cynical as that. There's certainly an argument to say that some individuals, I'd say the, the people who are at the very upper echelons of power won't want to give up that power. I think that's probably a fair argument. But I'd say the average 
human being who is walking amongst us does want um, better equality for everyone and probably doesn't really realise, first of all, where the stats are at at the moment, which is why I do like to sometimes you know, preface the argument with um, some of these statistics, because everybody goes, oh, okay, this is a conversation worth having. And that is the same reaction I'm getting from, from boys and, and men as I am from women and girls. A lot of women and girls might already be aware of that conversation, already involved in that, and have already been activists in this area. But for a lot of boys and men, they hear that, and they're equally kind of shocked. Um, so I think this is where data is actually very helpful, because you can see that um, you, a knee-jerk reaction that gender doesn't matter actually is inappropriate. You can see that there's a couple of categories. That's why I have a section on gender where I mention that gender comes from genre, which is helpful because it reminds us that it's a way we categorize people. We categorize them into two genders. There are actually more than two genders, but essentially we go male, female. This means you have certain aptitudes, interests, and your um, life will go down this particular path. The fact that that's kind of arbitrary and it's not scientifically based is something that's um, perhaps difficult to um, tackle as a conversation without a little bit of data. But the other thing is that um, that gender blindness thing I think is very interesting and I've just looked up here. Um, I've got research from the Annenberg School of University of Southern California. They did a very interesting study and found that when men make up 83% of a group, the men in that group think it's 50-50 men and women. <clears throat> and if just 33% of the people in the room are women, the men perceive that there are actually more women in the room than men. Now, this study, I did not find the data on what the women perceived, but I suspect that there is actually not a huge difference in that perception. The reason being that we are used to seeing fewer women in spaces. Like I said, this is what we see in our parliament, on our television screens, both in terms of the news, the politicians speaking, um, our storytelling, the Bechdel test, as I said, we have become really blind to this because it has become a kind of neutral and normal thing for women to be taking up less space, to be heard less, um, to be shown less. And uh, as a kind of humorous example, I, I talk about the Princess Leia character. So when I was a kid, I loved Empire Strikes Back. And I, what I didn't realize when I was seven years old, that the most unrealistic thing about that film wasn't the carbon freezing and the mystical force and all the droids and all the aliens and all the different planets and all this. It was actually that there was one known woman in the universe. <laughs> right? It, I didn't even notice. It's not entirely true. There are like five extras. Literally, you have to, if you blink, you'd miss them walking past. And a couple of them are answering the phones on Hoth, basically answering the phones like receptionists. And this is a world that's literally populated by hundreds and hundreds of characters. Uh, same watching uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel, the Wes Anderson film, lovely film, enjoyed it immensely. I love his work. If you look at the film, there are literally about 100 recognizable male characters and there are two named female characters. There's the three sisters which are mostly mute, the love interest, and then the woman who dies at the very beginning, played by Tilda Swinton. And there are literally like at least 20 notable male actors who are in that film as the ensemble cast. We see this, it's gender neutral to us. There's, we, we kind of perceive it as being a natural uh, balance. And so I think that, that term gender blind, and like you said, even gender mute, that there is, um, I think, mostly a lack of, um, of noticing the issue, which is the 
the primary problem. Um, and this is at least my optimistic perspective and part of what the fictional woman is about is just to sort of show to people that this is a conversation worth having. You know, that there is an issue of diversity that can be addressed. <laughs> Damn Paul. Um, <laughs> um, I want to take you back to something um, which uh, is, I think, extremely difficult, uh, which you touched on briefly, but a bit too briefly, and that's um, the, the, the rivalry, the um, dislike, uh, the bitchiness, the mean girls, etc. Now, I haven't been a professor of gender studies for 30-odd years not to understand what the theoretical basis of that is, and some of that is precisely the ways in which women are portrayed in competition. But I want you to reflect on, you know, how you might, with this book, or I was thinking about this today in terms of Angelina Jolie, um, doing extraordinary work, but still getting absolute crap in terms of, you know, oh, well, she can't be real and da-da-da-da-da. Um, so how do you use um, and, and work against that image that for some women they'll say, oh, Tara's got it all, you know, or, you know, that kind of continual bitchiness. It's hard for me to speak on this issue because my experience has actually been that I have had a great deal of support from women. Um, so I sometimes get asked this, and I actually want to acknowledge that some people have real problems within their workplaces, within their families, within their school environments, where they're not getting support from women and girls. And it hurts probably even more because they expect that support. Um, but I haven't personally had that experience. I've actually found that I have been, um, you know, I have had the most problems with a particular type of man who has been very uncomfortable with uh, the way that I've lived my life or the way that I present myself. Um, so perhaps that speaks to the fact that um, I work in publishing. It is not um, by any means run by men, as people have shown, and there's a lot of data to show that a lot of men have the senior positions in publishing or are the uh, reviewers and, and the cultural gatekeepers, if you will. But it is an industry which is dominated on the ground by women and also um, most of the readers are women. My agent is, is a woman and so on. Um, so I guess I'm not in uh, probably a, a good enough position in a way to answer your question um, because my instinct is just to say, you know, my problem has been very specific to do with a kind of anger at my not fitting a stereotype about what, what this woman is supposed to do. And that anger has mostly come from men. And it's mostly been women who have said, you know, give it a rest, you know, and sort of uh, been willing to look beyond that. Um, so whilst I recognize there's a very important conversation to have there, um, I don't know that I can really speak to it authentically. Um, I do have a chapter in my book called Gold Diggers and Mean Girls, um, which attempts to address some of those myths about, you know, all women hate each other, or particularly women are their own worst enemies, which is laughable if you have any crime research under your belt. It's clearly <laughs> really not the case at all. But the fact that we are so willing to uh, fall for that line, hook, line, and sinker every single time when all of the available data on um, on crimes that are committed on harm sh shows us that there's a huge problem within the culture of masculinity 
of boys and men killing each other and also killing women. But particularly, there, you know, um, I don't have the data at my fingertips right now, but if you think of a crime victim, we so often think of a woman, and I have certainly contributed to that with my crime series by focusing on a particular type of killer. But if you look at the data, it, boys and men are much more likely to kill each other than they are, um, than women are ever likely to harm each other in any way that is, um, that you can actually collect data on. You know, there may be some comments, there may be unhelpful kind of cultural things happening, which is not insignificant, but in terms of actual measurable harm, there's good reason to think we should have a motto that says, you know, all men hate each other. But we don't. We don't have that motto. It's just not something that rolls off the tongue. And I think there's a, a lot of reasons for that, which I go into in the book. But um, whenever I'm asked that sort of question, I think I, I, I know that I'm coming from a position that's a little bit different because I haven't had those types of negative experiences, but I have been more familiar with the crime side, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't particularly hawking at a personal point of view, but I do think that that remains a really important issue for women and feminists to address, um, and an ongoing one, too. I agree. Now, we've got time for one more question before oh. we go to the floor. Well, I was just going to ask you, because uh, I was interested in the way in which you um, identified commercial success with, for example, the movies, the top-selling movies or the big box office ones were the ones with, with females involved. And it reminded me of a, uh, an examination of two French banks at the end of the um, GFC. And they examined the banks with the regards to their financial performance. And the bank that had more females involved in executive positions, decision-making positions, outperformed the more male bank considerably. And maybe that was to do with elimination of, of risk or risky behavior. But my question, therefore, is do you feel that by heightening, in a sense, um, women's commercial value in areas like publishing or books or films um, might help? draw the attention of their, to, to men who, who, who believe, men believe that business is the default position for men in any case. So do you feel that that might be a way of, of moving into that area? Look, I think, I think there are a lot of um, forms of activism and a lot of ways forward that have a great deal of validity. Um, I th there are people who argue, of course, that we need to change the entire system to get anywhere. And then there are people who argue that we need to get more women into the system to change it from within or to participate in that system. And I think actually both arguments have uh, positive points. So I, I'm, I guess I'm someone who would say that looking at um, the value of women's input commercially is something that's important. Perhaps also not looking at everything as having a, a dollar value would also be probably pretty positive. Um, and I'd say that on a whole bunch of different levels, the way we value uh, the feminine and masculine is hugely skewed. The authority and the value culturally, financially, intellectually that we that give to the, um, the masculine has traditionally been so, so different than the way we have valued the feminine. And that also includes the way we, um, we skew the choices that people make. If, if you're making a kind of choice to be caring, um, it is, is not given as much value 
as, it, as something which is more traditionally masculine. Whether it's a man doing it or a woman doing it, it, is, it has less value culturally. It's perceived to have less value. And that is hugely problematic on so many levels. But it's not coming out of a vacuum. There's a long historical context for all of this. And that's part of the argument in the book, that there are these unconscious biases which are even measurable, that we can look at, that are coming out of literally centuries of teaching. So the things we associate with the feminine are given less value. And if we look even at occupations, we can see that this is clearly demonstrated, the caring occupations, so childcare, uh, you know, absolutely undervalued, nursing, absolutely undervalued. Um, as you said, m men tend to feel c more comfortable in this sort of business arena that that's somehow carved out for them. And we can see if we look at issues of um, equal pay, that the biggest gender um, pay gaps are in areas like finance, which doesn't make any sense if you want to apply the physiological argument. And you go, oh, it's, you know, construction, stuff that only guy, you know, guys might be better at because the way they're built. No, it's finance, it's insurance, it's areas of authority, this sort of issue of unconscious authority. And then you have to look back maybe 40 years and you say, oh, that's right. Um, even in South Australia, women had to quit work when they got married. In 1972, women still had to quit work legally when they got married. So, of course, they're not going to be considered, you know, the top end of the financial sector. Our mothers, certainly our grandmothers, but for a lot of us, our mothers were not allowed to get bank accounts, were not allowed to get loans, could not own property. I mean, to imagine that there would be no cultural hangover from this is extremely naive. And if you look at that long-standing uh, history, that historical context, you can see really where a lot of the data comes from. And you can see that we are not anywhere near at this kind of uh, position where we can really say that gender doesn't have an impact anymore. It very clearly does on, on so many different levels. Um, my name is Alice Segretti. I've uh, won a few Hollywood film awards and had three feature films screen at Cannes. The irony is that until probably about five years ago, most of them were male-dominated characters. I'm currently working on two scripts that pass the Bechdel test perfectly. I'm thrilled. <laughs> I should just want to make a point of correction there too. It's two named characters, and there cannot be a conversation <laughs> at all in the film about a man between those two characters. Actually, that's not the usual Bechdel test. Okay. No, the, the normal Bechdel test, the there are two, you're right, there are two ratings. One is that the, the two female characters have to be named characters. Yeah. The other one is that they can be any female characters. Um, and then um, they can discuss all kinds of things in the film, but they have to have a scene where they talk about something other than a man. Yeah, I go for the more stringent one, no male talking at all. Um, but my concern is this. Over the last three or four years, I've been studying quite a few different things sociologically, particularly in dating sites, where out of 2,500 male profiles that attached onto, you know, approached me, every one of them wanted to take me out to dinner, provided I'd give them something more after. So I haven't been out to dinner with a male, and I have no male friends. How do we change this perception, within men particularly, that women are purely for sex and that you can have seven of them for, you know, during the week, taking them out to dinner and get something on the side at the end, you know, dessert or whatever? To answer your question, how do we change that? Obviously, it's not a perception every man has or every woman has of her role within that um, dating scene. But I would argue that we have laws, we have policies, the, many of those have changed. What lags behind is cultural perceptions. And if we continue to 
um, repeat these cultural patterns through our storytelling, we're more likely to have those cultural perceptions stay stagnant. So my argument is that we can actually change the fictions by voting with our ticket stubs for the, you know, the films that pass the Bechdel, or just, I mean, some films that pass the Bechdel are actually terrible for female representation. It's only one way that we can measure it. But to actually give, um, to reward new stories, more progressive stories, um, new thinkers, more progressive thinkers. We can, we can make cultural change, um, both ourselves in terms of telling our stories, being part of the public story, but also um, by actually rewarding those who are doing work which is more about diversity and progress and less damaging and archaic. And maybe also acknowledging that we have departments of gender studies in our old bastion um, conservative universities. Question, uh, sorry, question over there. Uh, hello. Um, yes, I'd just like to say, as a young woman under the age of 30, who, um, I, you know, I can just relate to so many of the things in, in this book, and I feel that many of the pursuits that I've undertaken in my life have been female-dominated pursuits. Uh, for instance, you know, studying humanities, mostly females, uh, being a librarian, again, an occupation that's, you know, this idea of cultural value attached to these things, and, and being a dancer as well, and seeing that, again, dance is another area where, um, you know, you, you very rarely find a, a male dancer, you know, in, in a class, or there are very few, and there's also this, this idea that it's not um, a masculine enough pursuit, this idea of the feminine, effeminate male being something that is not acceptable by the Anglo culture, and how... How, you know, how difficult that must be for, the men, for men as well who do have an artistic sort of side um, and, and what we can do to address that cultural perception because, um, you know, through my involvement in, you know, Spanish and Latin American dancing, it's a very, it's a very different mindset and you do touch on that in um, the, the chapter on the beautiful, beautiful men. This idea that, um, you know, actually, for instance, flamenco is actually more of a, a masculine thing in the Spanish culture. And in Greek dancing, it's a, very, it's a very different kind of cultural attitude and cultural value attached to those things. So, yeah, I'd just like to really just raise that point and as a point of discussion, really. Thank you. Thank I, you. I absolutely agree, of course. That's why I wrote the Beautiful Man chapter, which opens with a, a flamenco scene in sing authentic flamenco in uh, Madrid because it was Straight such on. an obvious illustration of the fact that our Anglo-Saxon sort of heteronormative thing that we've got here in terms of our culture, the way we view masculinity, the dominant view, um, is not universal. There's a long history of men um, demonstrating more sensual attributes, being creative, and in our current culture that is really um, ridiculed. You know, think of all of these names they use, metrosexual. There was another one, I can't even remember what they called. There was a huge article about some other type of sexual, which was a, a type of man who beefed himself up and might have a selfie. That, that was, you know, another label. But we, they used the word sexual as if it, he could not really be heterosexual. The, the, the thing that we needed to call into question was he wasn't really heterosexual because he was aware that he had an image, that he was aware that he was wanting to attract a partner, Right? I mean, I think it's a hugely damaging because it continually, um, this tendency, um, I think it's very toxic, this tendency to 
to teach that men can only show their allure and power through physical power and through capital continues to perpetuate a long-standing issue of inequality between the sexes where women were literally property and men owned the property. And we should be very, very enthusiastically discarding this idea that the only attractive man is the one in the suit with the Rolls Royce and the house behind him. And that if that man is, you know, physically attractive, wanting to attract a mate as, you know, go to Spain, go to any Mediterranean country, look at old photographs, look at dandies, you know, they used to also be aware of cultivating their physical selves. This isn't going to be everybody's choice, but to ridicule people who want to also show that they have an emotional, sensitive, creative side to themselves because they're male, I think that's hugely uh, problematic and toxic. So I, I agree with you on that. The premise to my question, uh, you'll probably argue with, but my question concerns the behavior of females when they get in a male role, such as become the head of a corporation, they tend to behave more like men. And the reason I'm asking that question is I've studied this in a number of corporations. There's been a lot of studies that boards that are made up of equal men and equal women, tend, those companies and those firms tend to behave better performance-wise than if they're all male. Could you explain why women adopt the role of a man? And I know that that's controversial because it may not be that case. Well, actually, I think Paul can probably speak to this because he has been looking at data on the performance of organizations that have a better gender mix. Um, but I'd also say that you know, behave like men is an interesting comment. Is that what does that mean? Um, I mean, I because we apply more authority and weight to the masculine than if we are seeing someone in a role of power, are we automatically seeing them as more masculine? I, I'd argue that's probably the case. So there's probably, you know, it's a, a bit slippery actually defining how women act like men or vice versa. But I think Paul would probably have something to say about organizations and performance. Well, there's, there's a couple of things that I could say which would be um, really case histories. One, one was a case history based on research that I did amongst the uh, management consultants and uh, law firms, corporate law firms. And one of the people that I spoke to there who'd been uh, recently become a major uh, senior partner in the company, a woman, um, I asked her, you know, what is it like working here? Um, you know, is, is this a male-dominated world? She said, absolutely. She said, every day is man's day here. And uh, then she described how, and she, this is her phrase, how she felt that in order for her to succeed, she had to man up, her phrase. And then I was interested to see the way in which all the female partners of the company, um, who I met over a period of time, all dressed in, if you like, I mean, very well tailored and elegant, but you know, female suits, uh, business suits. And what was interesting is that the, as you said, the performance figures were, were better because the most successful partner in the company and this is a major you know, international company, and it's a killing world to work in. I mean, I, I, some of you may be lawyers. I'd hate to be in this world because they, they're on a 10-minute on a incremental charging system, so therefore they're taking phone calls in the middle of the night from their clients in Tokyo in order to rack up the 10-minute increments. Um, all the top performing, um, therefore revenue-generating partners were women. Um, and I think it comes down to a question of you have this patriarchal institution and women finding, if you like, strategies to survive and succeed within it, which is, if you like, let's call it the man-up strategy, and versus maybe considering 
changing the institution, um, the whole structure of the institution, not just getting female representatives. I know it's easier said than done, but maybe actually finding ways to actually restructure or reform businesses on a, on a, on a better way. Um, the, in the advertising world, um, which if I ask the question like, what, what is this world which advertises to women and men and, and, and has a reputation for having a lot of women work within it, and you ask both the women and the men, you know, what is, what is this world? Is it gendered male or female? The answer always is emphatically, it's male. It's a male world. Um, and some of my colleagues here will know this phrase, but I was talking to a young woman who was, again, this is her strategy. Um, how do you survive in this, in this world? A very bright, um, very intelligent, very successful young creative person, woman, um, who said, oh, that's simple. I have a philosophy. I dress like a girl and I have a foul mouth. <laughs> that's, that's how she succeeded in this thing. So I think it's a question of whether women feel, which I think is really unfortunate, feel the pressure to sort of emulate male behaviour or whether there's an alternative which is actually restructuring business um, that is a more equal... I actually, mm. without going on too long, but I was interested in one of the um, words that you mentioned, Tara, in your book. It was to do with Gina Davis. And you were describing... Um, that she was advocating that we need to share um, more of this sandbox, I think was the phrase there. And I, I personally think that there's a problem with this word equality. Um, not because it isn't the end goal, the end objective, um, which undoubtedly it is, equal share, equal opportunity, etc. But I think sharing is probably a more constructive way of getting towards equality because let's, let's share the resources, let's share the facilities on the way, which doesn't necessarily mean dividing it up into 50-50, because mm. men are really reluctant to give, in, to give away power. And therefore, when you say equality, they, they immediately say, you mean half of it? I mean, it's, almost like, it's almost like a sort of commercial divorce court. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's, that's a problem. I, I don't know whether I've answered your question, but... And if we could just say, it's also not just that one sphere that the woman's in. You know, it, it will be how she is interpolated or hailed in various different milieu. Question from you. I'll be very quick. Um, my first uh, thing that I'll speak of is a comment. Oh, can you hold it closer? Sorry. I attended a screening at Sydney Film Festival of The Rover by David Michaud. It's an Australian film. And there was a Q&A at the end. And I was really encouraged to see that a woman put her hand up and said, David, there was one named female character. <laughs> and she needed a man to carry a gun. She didn't just carry it herself. And so there was applause across the entire I heard theater. about this. I was actually told she'd just finished reading the book. I'd actually been told that that was what put her on to the Bechtel test. Yeah, and I, it was really encouraging. And I think the challenge was, David, can you write a female um, character for your next film that is independent and doesn't require a sidekick that's male? Um, the second thing I was going to say is that I feel that on a personal level, I'm really interested in um, men's health and um, all of the fictions that this is so significant, what you've written and what you've re revealed on a personal level, the uh, ripple effect is, it's gonna keep going. Um, but I think that there's also space that I feel we should be including men in this conversation because in the nuclear family, um, there's studies showing that if the, um, if dads take an active role in both the rearing of children and the housework, the aspirations that their daughters have um, are usually in male-dominated fields or rather less female, traditional female roles like nursing and education and childcare. 
And I found that really significant. There's a blog I read called The Good Men Project, which has a lot of conversations about the changing, um, or I guess the diverse nature of masculinity and what it means to be a man. And the authors are invited to be both male and female and discuss any number of different issues. And I just wanted to know your viewpoint in terms of um, how boys get to show their sensitivity, yeah. and particularly as we move to um, businesses taking paternal leave seriously, that men do want to have relationships with their children and um, how that then creates space for their wives to become the breadwinner and, you know... Well, there's a lot of data on that. Um, the Good Men Project is quoted in the book as well as Pretty Rad for a Dad, which is a great Australian um, project. Um, there's a lot of data on that, the fact that there's a, a huge gulf between um, what men actually want and what is taking place. There's also the fact that... Um, the more male-dominated the field is that a man is working in, the less likely he is to ask for workplace flexibility to spend time with his family, and also the less likely he is to get it if he asks. So there are issues of policy there, but there's also obviously a social issue, an issue of, so of society, of pressure, of perceptions as to what is appropriate for men and women to be doing. And um, you know that's one of the reasons why I speak on that issue in the Playing in Mothers and Fathers chapter, and certainly I have, you know, I can take some of my own experience to that and the experience of my husband, Bant, who's here today. The fact that um, he, a man leaving the house is just a man. Uh, if he's got a baby at home, a woman leaving the house without the baby is a neglectful parent. You know, a, a man who is with his child in a park is, wow, so great to be babysitting his own child. <laughs> right? Um, that these are constant... You know, you can laugh and some of it's funny, but it's also very sad that there's this con constant reminders that the expectation is that he will be unable to essentially care for his own child because he's a man. The fact that that is a continual reinforced thing with no evidence whatsoever to back it up is absolutely extraordinary. And that I will also, you know, in, in any one group, people will say, you know, so what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a, you know, I've written two books and I'm um, uh, a father. Yes, but what do you do? But people will ask me, you know, how are you coping with being a working mom? You know, it's like, I can just imagine this poor neglected child and me sort of pulling my hair out. So it's, there are really skewed perceptions and people encounter them literally on a daily basis if they don't fit this really standard traditional mold. And of course that is going to influence people's perceptions of their own lives, of their own success or their own lifestyle. And it's also gonna um, affect their decision making. There's only so many times you can come up against resistance before you think, oh, this just isn't for me, you know? Um, and also the language used, Mr. Mum, you know, this kind of nonsense, being a housewife to a man, you know, this sort of thing is really, um, problematic and, and regularly encountered, even in the hospital. Men are useless. I was, I was absolutely livid when a midwife said that. Men are useless. N no, they're not, and particularly not my husband who's sitting right here. And, you know, but, but the fact that it feels socially okay to say this, to, to make those statements, is really problematic. So, you know, certainly anecdotally, I can say that there's a huge problem there, but it's also in the data in this book that there is a big gulf between what people would like in terms of um, being able to be whole human beings, having a work life, having a public life, having a family life and a personal life, an emotional life, an intellectual life, not simply just an economic life, 
the fact that that is, um, you know, there is that huge gulf still in 2014, I think can be addressed on so many different levels and we need to change, again, cultural attitudes to make it possible to free up more women and men and boys and girls to reach the potential that they have. Can I just make a, a comment to add in support of this? Um, the advertising world doesn't help with this, this particular situation. I mean, because primarily it deals in stereotypes. So therefore it shows predictable, you know, predictable families, predictable roles. And one of the things in terms of the changing role of men, it doesn't reflect that at all. So for example, men um, in advertising outside the home, in the, in, the, in the public world in which they dominate, they're authoritative, they do stuff, they drive cars, um, they you know, manage things, they do all that sort of stuff. But in the domestic role, when they're put inside in advertising at the moment, there's a real swing to dad is dickhead. Um, it can't operate the washing machine, can't change the baby, can't do whatever. Um, and therefore, in a sense, that reinforces the authority outside the home and the incompetence within the home. And therefore, in a sense, it, it reinforces that stereotype. And then so, we go, oh, but that's just nature, yeah, yeah. apparently. But that, yeah, that's right. So therefore, it becomes, if you like, from the, the perceived gender roles depicted in mainstream media and advertising, it's very confusing. Um, I was literally at a cafe today where they didn't have male or female on the toilets. They had two objects. The women's toilet, I'm assuming it was a woman's, had a, a tube of lipstick, pink lipstick, and the men's had a screwdriver. <laughs> so obviously I went into the one with the screwdriver because I like to make stuff. I think beyond, I mean, some of these fairly obvious things, it's also that women have to give up spaces that are incredibly rich. And I remember coming, going back home after I left um, to go to university and I loved sitting with my mum and my sister and we'd talk into the night and there was dad who was an army major sitting over by himself and I said, it's not fair, we've got to bring dad into this too. Um, and it changed the nature of things. Um, but it was, it was important, it was good. Hi, thanks very much for for what you've done. My name is William Tanomori and I'm a specialist in neonatal medicine. And over the last three decades, I've been working with sick and premature babies. And I just wanted to share a couple of things which I've noticed in those 30 years, which echo what you're telling us about role and gender and expectation. The first is that the proportion of female specialists is now at least 50% in my specialty. And I think that's had a, a very good effect on, on the way it's done. The second is something much more recent, which I think is very exciting, which is that we're now beginning to look, and there is some preliminary evidence, that if you give the role of the primary caregiver, the specialist nurse, to the mother, that it can have some profound effects on outcomes. And this idea comes from Africa, from Tallinn, where they don't have enough nurses, so they've had to um, train mothers to be the nurse, mentored by specialist nurses. And there is some evidence that um, when the mother is given the opportunity to be the specialist carer, uh, good things happen. The birth, that the weight increases much faster and the proportion of mothers who go home breastfeeding can nearly double. And so I think that there's some really good examples of the kind of ideas that you're promoting in, in hospital medicine. And I think we can, it can have an enormous potential impact on the way medicine is conducted throughout other specialties as well. So thank you very much. Oh, th thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's very interesting that there has been, there's tended to be a, um, 
a gulf between a perceived masculine form of medicine, and we see this with um, traditionally the obstetrics and gynecologists. It is not a masculine profession, but it still is perceived as such. And mid midwifery, which was pr uh, traditionally um, women um, focused or women uh, dominated. And the fact that these two sides of medicine are still having troubles meeting, I think is very interesting in my work with uh, UNICEF for uh, as the first patron for breastfeeding in Australia and also with the Baby Friendly Health Initiative and um, the as UNICEF uh, patron for child survival has really shown me that a lot can be accomplished when those two sides, they shouldn't really even be sides, it should all be on the same team, when they meet and realise that we do need specialist care but we also need midwifery, um, that um, there's so much that can be done um, without having this perceived kind of issue of you know, the masculine authority who's coming into a uh, extreme situation where specialist care is needed and the uh, this more standard kind of midwifery care. So, yeah, I, I think there's probably some work still to be done, but I've been very heartened to see a movement towards that in maternity care in Australia. Someone in the middle, right there. Uh, hi, um, I wanted to ask two questions on the same basic thing. Um, what's some of your favourite movies? And with a daughter, what movies do you show her? This is a, a, a good question. Um, I have new favourite movies pretty much every week, so I, I, um, I can't really peg anything as an all-time favourite. But as um, the mother of a daughter, as a parent, um, and any parent in the room here who has a young child at the moment will probably recognise that there is pretty slim pickings for... Um, for movies and even television shows for a young audience where there is a female protagonist. Um, so I can like rattle them off to you now, that's how few they are. There's Peppa Pig, Dora the Explorer, there's Merida from Brave, and there's now Frozen, which is the new one. Am I forgetting anything, Bert? I think that's pretty much it. So those are in high rotation in our house. And what's extraordinary is that I can actually name those and count them on one hand. Uh, like I said before, the films that don't pass the Bechtel test are many, but the ones that pass do better. And we can see also that with things like Brave and with Fr uh, Frozen, remember Brave was the first uh, Pixar film that had a female lead that they've ever done, right? And the Gina Davis Institute for Media, Gender and Media, um, which Paul mentioned earlier, they've done some studies and found that in family films, so the films that you're showing to your kids, um, there are at least three male characters to every female character, which is a ratio that has not changed since World War II, right? And so the fact that that is the case means that you have to look so much further as a parent. I mean, you do want to just show that girls can be ha you know, take up half the sandbox, as you said before. I don't want to put into her head that only boys have adventure and we're sort of trailing behind. So um, as a parent, you really, it does become really quite obvious. So if you do believe that the stories we tell matter, I'd say that we need to continue to vote with our ticket stubs for these films that just give a bit more diversity. Obviously, she's still going to see many more stories where there are male protagonists. That's unavoidable and that happens all the time. But I, you know, as a parent, I keep going out of my way to make sure that she's also seeing these films. And as a result, <laughs> very high rotation on Brave. Very high rotation. Can I support your, just very briefly, I know the question was directed at Tara. Um, we have one daughter who's now you know, much older than Tara's daughter. 
Um, but just as a little anecdote, uh, the favourite movie in, in our house at that time was uh, The NeverEnding Story. And my daughter, until this day, insists that the movie had the girl on the flying dog. So we used to say, Polly, it's, it's a boy actually. No, 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 it's a girl. It's got long hair. No, no, no. So she absolutely insisted and turned that male-dominated thing into a female thing. So it's the girl on the flying dog. Do you remember for her to be saved, the one special, I'd say, Princess Leah-like character in Never End the Story had to be saved by the boy giving her a name. Do you remember that? That's, there's so many things there I could talk about. I just, uh, and yet, love the film. Like I'm saying, not wanting to pinpoint, finger point at any particular film, director, writer. Let's look at the big patterns, you know? I'm not saying any politician who's, well, there's some I don't like, but any particular politician or individual is to blame for these patterns. They're not. There's literally centuries and centuries that have led up to this. In fact, with that in mind, I might just read a couple of quick quotes to, to close from some of the great authority figures that have helped to shape the culture that we have today. We can look, for instance, at German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. You'll all recognize him. When women hold the helm of government, the state is at once in jeopardy because women regulate their actions not by the demands of universality, but by arbitrary inclinations and opinions. And then we can, look, uh, we can look at 1873, Harvard President Edward Clark, who famously argued against women's education, claiming that the blood demanded by the brain would prevent the female reproductive system from developing property. <laughs> We've also got Friedrich Nietzsche, who claimed in 1888 that when a woman becomes a scholar, there is usually something wrong with her sexual organs and neurologist Charles L. Dana, who wrote in 1915 that women's upper spinal cords were smaller, thereby affecting their abilities in political initiative or judicial authority in a community's organization, which therefore compromised their ability to vote. Revealingly, he also wrote that the push for women's rights was selfish. Quote, an echo of the childish demand, I want my donut and I want it now. And I'll just finish with our esteemed prime minister who um, previously has claimed that it would be, quote, folly to expect that any women will ever dominate or even approach equal representation in a large number of areas simply because their aptitudes, abilities, and interests are different for physiological reasons. So my argument is not that any individual is responsible for these ideas, many of which reside in us still unconsciously, but rather that there are literally centuries of teaching that have led us to this point. And if we all recognize that we have biases, I have biases on all kinds of things that I need to continually challenge. Gender, race, issues of disability, issues of different eth um, ethnic groups, all kinds of things that are going to be residing in me unconsciously that I need to challenge. I need to challenge those assumptions. And if we all do that together, we challenge our assumptions, we change ourselves, and we change the world we live in literally by breaking through these fictions one at a time. And that, that is my argument in this book. And on that note, I'd like you to thank both Tara and Paul um, for a stimulating evening. And also, thank you so much for coming. <laughs>